My name is Andy Kum. I am a Vietnamese American born in Fountain Valley from Orange County. I am currently storyboarding in live action films and working in animation as well. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. If I go back to what being Vietnamese means to me, it goes back to family for me, that sense of community, um, of care and looking out for each other. You know, I think that was something that my parents had very instilled in us as kids. You know, when my parents came here, um, all of our aunts and uncles, we all lived in, like in the same neighborhood. So every weekend, we would like have dinner parties and get to know everyone. Or, I mean, like spend time with everyone. Um, so that has always been a frequent thing in my life. Even now, as I'm older, I try to make my visits, go down to Orange County once a month and pay my respects to all my cousins and my nieces and nephews. And then I think that is such an important part for me being Vietnamese is where that my cousins are my best friends, you know, and my uncles and aunts are like my great friends too. Um, so that's, that to me is a big part of what being Vietnamese is to me. And I think that sense of uh, hospitality and care for one another. So I think that's something that has um been a strength of me in sharing with other people as I move forward in life. That seems to be a big we'll we'll get into your project uh Tao later, but that's you know when I read the um your deck about that very thing because you brought it up, it resonated with me because it was only my brother and I growing up and then we had 25 cousins or more than that, but maybe 35 if you count my dad's side. And we I always felt like these other guys would have like these five or six guys in their family, you know, like uh, siblings. And I, I really resonated with you when you wrote that your cousins are like your, it's like the bedrock of your existence, you know? Yeah. And you know, why do you think that that is? It, it's a weird dichotomy between like a friend, but a, and a family where they can, if they're a sibling, they can be like a total asshole to you, you know? Not that they can't, but I got picked on, but it's never to that far extent. You know, when it's your siblings, like you go a little bit harder on them, you know, yeah. but with your cousins, it's like they they can push it, but also like compared to being friends they are closer, you know, yeah. there's a shorthand now between each other. And, you know, we had a family reunion back in 2015. So my great grandpa had three wives mm. and each of the wives had eight to nine kids. They had another eight to nine kids. But I think at that family reunion, there was like, that showed up, there was a quarter, there's only a quarter of us that showed up, which is 250. So that means worldwide, there's like a thousand, you know, spread across. And it was great meeting with a lot of the cousins, second generation, or sorry, second cousins or third cousins, because we just clicked. There is a shorthand that we just knew because of the family culture that's being spread down from generation to generation, you know? And I thought that was just such a fascinating experience. Like one of my cousins, I went to high school with her. I didn't even know this. <laughs> And then now we're like, you know, we met after that reunion and we, you know, we're, we're like best friends now. So it's great. That's insane. One man producing all those people. Yeah. He's a, my, my, it's funny. Like uh, at the reunion, we're like, so uh, which, uh, which wife are you from? Number two, number one, number three, uh, you're number two. You don't get first dibs in the food. You know, it's like just fun stuff like that. Wow. That, that doesn't exist uh, anymore. No, that, 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 that model. That, not here. <laughs> Not so much in Vietnam as much anymore, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think 
it's it's also part of like this wartime um, history that we have where the men were going off to war and, you know, women were, you know, there's more, more women than men that were kind of surviving. Yeah. You know, they just had to start families as well. So to, you know, I hope I'm not making uh, excuses for men's uh, wild behaviors here in those days. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. Cause my dad was the youngest and I didn't know about this, but like, you know, the, there are, each family is able to keep the youngest boy. They don't have to enlist. So my oldest, my dad's oldest brother went to the army. The, I think the middle brother went to the Navy. And my dad was like stuck at home, you know, because someone had to carry out the name. So I was like, oh, this is kind of why you're like, act like a slow brat sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how you got into the storyboarding game. Yeah. So originally I just wanted to tell stories through comics. And I was like, I, I had worked at an engineering company for seven years and I never knew that you can get paid to do art, you know? But I was always reading comics. I was like, you know what? Like, I'd be happy just learning these skill sets to make tell my own stories inside as a hobby for fun. And once I started going to art school, that led me to like different paths of art, or like, or showed me different paths of art. You know, concept design, storyboarding. Like, there's like the entertainment industry is a whole like different disciplines of artists, like engineering. You know, there's electrical engineer, mechanical engineers. Da 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 da. Same thing with artists and uh, entertainment. And I was like, wow, like if I learn storyboarding, it'll give me the skill sets to do comics for myself one day. And then as I started learning more about storyboarding, I fell in love with it. And I was like, wait, there's a possibility to make a living off this. You know, that's when I got exposed to that. Well, one of my mentors, he took me to DreamWorks to visit. And when I went there, I was like, oh, wow, this exists. This is tangible. I want it now. You know, so that really planted that seed in my head. And that's kind of where I started juggling art school at the time on top of my full-time job. Um, what's funny was that I kind of kept it from my parents because they were like, oh, it's just a hobby. It's like, you know? And then I was like, I think two years in, my dad was like, is this, this isn't a hobby because <laughs> you stay up late every night to two in the morning drawing. You don't go out on Friday nights. You don't go partying you don't go dating like this is what a normal guy should be doing at his age you know in my early 20s and then i was like yeah this is a thing i want to do and then he was just like mm, you know i uh i hope you make it before i die basically um because he was it, i understood it you know like um my dad just it's something they quite don't understand yet and i totally get it from from their from their generation to see it um, but basically, long story short, my dad was like, what are the chances that you'll succeed in doing this? You know, I was like, this is a trick question because if it's 50, 50, you'll tell me, you'll tell me to get off the ledge. But if it's like 80, 20, you'll tell me I'm too cocky and I need humility. So I was like, there's no winning this, you know? So I was like, okay, let's do something in the middle, like 70%. And then he's like, okay, well then I hope you make it before I die. And wow. then the reason being was that, you know, prior to this conversation, my parents have been very hard on me about this. You know, they're like, you're not going to make it. You're not talented. And what I realized was that after talking to my dad, he was like, if you go down this path, I can't be there to pick you up when you fall. And that's when it hit me. Like all that time of them, like making those remarks, it was just because they're just trying to protect me. Yeah. And he was like, you know, if you go down the path of like as an engineer or in healthcare, we have a whole family, a network, a support system for you if you fall. 
But if you go down that path, it's going to kill me as a father to not be there for you. You know, if you can't make it, especially if this is something you want to do, you know, and that just always stuck with me and kind of, I think just repainted the picture of my parents, you know, of just how they, you know, their love language is very different. Right. Um, but that just kind of just, I think that did kind of help solidify our relationship a bit more afterwards. What a beautiful story, you know, because sometimes we think our parents are blocking us out of maybe prestige reasons. And I'm, that that exists for sure. Or they are blocking us because they're just selfish and maybe they want a big retirement, uh, you know, help from, from their kids. But in this situation, it's more like, if you do this and you make it, you're going to make me happy because I want to see this happen before I die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How beautiful is that? My dad's a very stoic, obviously, man from that generation. And I remember when he went to visit me from uh, at Cartoon Network, we took him to the rooftop. There's a huge like Cartoon Network sign, and he was like, "Tell my mom's like, hey, Am, can you like take a selfie of me or take a photo of me with the CN uh, sign behind me?" And I was like, "I got you," because you never ask for a photo. I've never seen you ask for a photo, like in my entire life, like just a photo by himself, you know. And he just wanted a photo of that of himself with the Cartoon Network logo in the back of him and i was like you That's know pride it's pride yeah. very proud of you and you know we don't get to hear well now i'm you know obviously because i'm doing this work i, I want to showcase every nook and cranny that the vietnamese people are in especially in the entertainment industry because showcasing vietnamese in the entertainment industry is a building block for the brand of being vietnamese uh, worldwide not just in LA and not just in Vietnam, but everywhere we go, if we have more representation through storyboard artists, animation people, actors, obviously, if we are seen and heard uh, rippling in our own industries, in the entertainment industry, we make big changes and we make big changes for business people of Vietnamese descent. And we make changes and effect impact for the younger generations to go forward and really have the freedom to carry out whatever they want to do. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think the power of storytelling is very powerful. Yep. And I, I learned that recently with 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 Tao, the, the pilot I made. I premiered it at um uh, uh art our, our expo and we premiered it to like hundred people. It was act one. And afterwards this woman came up to me. It was really sweet. She's a uh, Korean. Her daughter and her are from Alaska. They flew all the way down. And her daughter takes my classes. Oh. And her mom came up to me and was like, I, watching your first act of your pilot, it's so great to see representation. And that dinner table scene, I know that family. You know, I had seen that. I feel it. And then when I saw when Tao smelt the grandpa's jacket, I knew who your family was. And then she started crying. And then I started crying. I was like, can I give you a hug? And it was just such a powerful moment for me of how story can really reach beyond people. And this, if mind you, this is just an animatic. This is not a final animation. It's just a bunch of words put together, you know, with amazing music and, and amazing acting. My can friends. Tell us, can you tell us what, I know what an animatic is, but I can you tell us what an animatic is? Yeah. yeah. So an animatic is basically... Um, a pre-visualization of the film or, or, or animated film where you're stringing together frame by frame drawings, you know, it's not quite an animation because we're not going fully deep into the animation, but somewhere like 
a step back from that. You know, we're taking a bunch of keyframes, but we're building the story out from there. It helps with uh, what I learned recently from live action is that a lot of people can't visualize in their head. So by having that animatic, it is a reference point for everyone to to communicate off now. You know, like if I tell you, imagine a red pen, you know, but and everyone's like, okay, they have a red pen in their head. But if you were to give notes off that, everyone's to give notes off that red pen in their head, right? If I tell you this is the red pen, we are going to make this pen bigger now. Now everyone knows what the reference point is. That's what an animatic can do for different production, different heads of departments. Yeah, it's like the blueprint that's actually alive, but it's just a skeletal br- blueprint. Mm-hmm. Of what uh, you got to add the flesh, the bones, and and all of that to it, right? Correct. Can you tell me exactly what a storyboard artist does for directors and the production team? Yeah, so it's it's a little bit different in animation. Um, in animation, we are kind of doing the first pass of the directing, where we have to visualize. We are the actors the DP, the director of photography, the camera operator, um, the director in terms of like composing all the shots and doing all the acting, you know, within the animatic. So there's a lot of poses, you know, I will like do board everything out and usually sit after the directors. Whereas for live action, a lot of that vision will come from the director and they'll sit down with you and then they'll be like, um, here's how I'm going to direct scene. Here's, here's why I want to place the cameras. Here's the coverage that we need. Or the DP can sit within with that meeting too. We'll break it down together, right? In that sense, I'm basically there to help be an extension of the director and the DP. At times when the director can be too busy and the DP can be too busy, then maybe after training me of their sensibilities, then they can trust me to hand it off to me as well. And I'll do my pass on it, you know? And then after this, they'll give notes on it. That, you know, we, we don't need come, that camera. We can consolidate. We can use a different lensing. So a lot of that is very fun and exciting for me because for me, it's like I never went to film school. So this last couple of years or a few years, I've been working in live action and that has been the best film school for me to be able to sit with the director and a DP and learn like, you know, what type of lensing do we use? Where, why do we place these shots? I think in animation, a lot of it was going off gut and, and kind of what I pieced together. But after working with the different directors, it just like, it really solidified everything for me and everything that I learned from those directors, I give back to my students in teaching and education. Do you think that we need to go to film school in order to be able to tell stories well? I think it's case by case. It's, it's everyone's a different context. Um, I've had friends that need that structure, you know, to be in it. I, my, my field that was getting out of engineering. Um, so that's what kept me out of it. And I have a pretty good, like a uh, work ethic and self-discipline to do it. But I've had friends that need that infrastructure. So it's just case by case for everyone. You know, I, I don't think, you know, when kids come into the world and, you know, they're like, okay, there's all of these stages of filmmaking, right? Storyboard is definitely not something that you think of right away because it's just very hidden, you know? And you came into storyboarding, it sounds like, from a love of comics, right? Love of comics and, like, films and animation. But I didn't know that it was a thing, you know? So, like, it wasn't until I think went to Comic-Con you see different artists get paid. I was like, what do you, what do, you do? Is there any storyboarding or comics? I'm like, cool they're like you should go to this school um in a concept design academy in pasadena so that's where i went and got my foundations but for me the biggest advice a friend told me was like you don't chase after the schools you chase after the teachers wow and then every there's a bunch of different schools are online so i just chased after the different teachers and i took the i consider myself like a failure in engineering 
because um, I wasn't always the best one, but I worked really hard. And I and I feel like my shortcomings of engineering come from a lack of the weak foundation. You know, when you go to UCR and UC system, it's a quarter system. You're cramming. 10 weeks, cram for midterm, finals, and you forget about it, right? I did not want to make that mistake. Again, going to this industry, I want to make sure that I have a strong foundation that I can compete. So I repeated each class at least two or three times. Wait, at the Concept Academy, you repeated classes two or three times? Yeah. So there's like a figure drawing class. I think I took it like six times. Sketching for environment, I took it three times. Basically, I was like, these are the skill sets I need to get to storyboarding. Focus on that, you know? Because for me, I don't have much time on my hand, right? I only have two or three hours every night. The classes I pick, I don't, like, I don't, I'm, I don't, I'm horrible with color and painting. I don't have any sense of color theory. So I never focus on that. Because if I don't have two or three hours a day, it's like, what do you pick? A or B? Does this get me to that goal? Nope. Then you go with A. So because I had less time, it made me more diligent in my decision choice, decision making. So instead of being like, it's like, you know, you go to like, I don't go to a restaurant, you have like 20 choices, but you go in and out, it's like double, double cheeseburger, easy cheeseburger, you know? So I always kind of kept it like that for me. And even as I move forward in life, in my career, I kept it like that too. So I just don't have that much time on my hand. So it just kind of helps me be very linear in that path, you know? Man, man, that says a lot about who you are though, man. To do do a class six times, do another class three times. That just shows the level of precision that you've set for yourself. It's incredible. Well, I mean, I mean, let's be honest, you learn everything the first time. You don't, right? So I treated it like a sport. It's like you get your reps in. And then I was, and another thing I kind of thought about it was like, you know, these teachers are working professionals. So they're keeping an eye out at you. So it's like, let me repeat these classes. And then within every term, the teachers can make my adjustments as if it's a coach, you know? So that's kind of how I saw it. Because I played tennis like in high school, but taking my experiences like from tennis and, and college engineering, what where were my shortcomings there and how can I adjust for learning, right? So that I can really solidify my foundations as a, a storyboard artist. But what did that do for the tuition cost? <laughs> you know, it's actually cheaper. I went to a trade school. So this is where I tell a lot of people. I have friends that go to private art schools and end up owing or paying a quarter of a million. You know, my tuition for those three years as a part-time student, if you throw in like going to conventions and all this stuff to network and stuff, 15,000, you know, and the starting salary for revisions and animation was 65,000. Okay. 65 K. That was my starting salary as an engineer. So I took a step down, but it was worth it, you know, and then, Eventually, now I make more than what I do as an engineer. And you're damn happy. That's the key to life because you can, nobody can compete against a guy who loves what they do so much that they don't, it's like, I don't give a, give a shit about the, the money, right? You're just yeah. like, I'll do this shit for free. You can't compete against guys like that. I mean, I saw it like, I get paid to learn. You're paying, yeah. you're paying to make me a beast. That's how I see it, you know? And like, even as an engineer, the mantra I had every day to keep going was that like, if I can succeed in a field that I'm not passionate about, imagine what I can do in a field I am passionate about, yeah. you know, that's why I kept reminding myself every day, but I've been, I was very lucky to work with people that also did their best to support me there, you know, so, so that I could do what I needed to do as well. If so there's no degree coming out of the concept Academy. Nope. You just take classes over and over yeah. and over. And so you build a portfolio. It's all merit meritocracy. Uh, 
Makes sense. So even with my students, they've taken my classes for my mentorships. They usually get jobs, you know, and they don't, they don't, a lot of them are doing career changes too. Now, it doesn't sound like in order to become an artist, it doesn't sound like you need to be talented or gifted. Just sounds like a lot of reps. It's a lot of reps, but I don't know. I mean, this is this is a big discussion with my friends. They they do think there is some of them don't think there is talent needed for art, but I think I I don't think I think I don't know if I don't know if you consider this a talent or not, but I think the leg up that I had was just the decision problem solving skills I developed for engineering to oh. break stuff down, and also just time and being aware that that you know. A or B, what do you pick? You know, and I was very fortunate to have my engineering degree to help pay for my art school, you know. And that's what I tell a lot of students. I was like, you have to be able to take care of yourself first. Because if you don't have the money coming in, how can you pay for classes and keep the consistency of growth? You know, I, I took improv at UCB and I had friends that were like struggling actors. And I was like, hey, we finished the class. We're gonna take the next class. Like, I can't, I gotta save up more money. And then I was like, I'm I'm very grateful to have what I have. You know, it allows you that consistency for growth. You know, I was going to ask you about, I was going to ask you a very personal question because it sounds like you're obsessed with getting better at your craft. And it sounds like you've foregone a lot of the young people's um, activities of dating or going out on Friday nights or, you know, just being out there. And you spent hours and hours and years and years in honing your craft. And sometimes that might create like an imbalance in your social behaviors or your perception mm -hmm. ability to, to read people. But I've spent time with you and I don't see that. I, I, I see a very cool guy. And then you throw in this whole UCB thing, right? UCB is um, uh, a place where you do improv for, for acting and comedy and stuff like that. But so you round it out in a different way, but do you ever feel like on the social side, because you've sacrificed so much that that social development has been hindered? I, I think my cousins for that, because I have such a big family, there's different personalities. And then I'm like, so it gives me a taste of what the world's like. So I can like adapt to different personalities because I have to hang out with my cousins. So when I hang with this group of people, I'm like, okay, I know what type of personality you're like, this type of, not to like box people up, you know, but you know, yeah. it just, it allows me to kind of maneuver, you know, also my, my parents, my mom's very social. <laughs> I picked a lot of my social skills mm -hmm. from her. Um, even her English is okay, but she's very confident in it, you know? Uh, so, but I think having different cousins and going out with different personalities really helped out a lot. Um, I think I've always enjoyed meeting people and talking to people. Yeah. You know? Have you, have you pulled out of the sort of the hermit life, the recluse life of, of an artist and now move more into socializing on a, on a bigger scale? I, it's a balance. I, I remember my dad, he made me promise him this. He's like, if you're going to go down this path, I want you to promise me three things. One, you don't give up your job. Second, you don't sacrifice your health. Third, you don't sacrifice your relationships. Like female relationships or like romantic relationships? Friends, family, those 
Yeah. Don't give up your family and friends. Yeah. The kind of vision that your dad has even to understand that third point. I mean, you know, it's like, why would he even think that? But the foresight to have that promise to make you promise that relationship part is very telling because he can kind of see into the future and saying, Hey, this can throw you out of whack. If you're just constantly digging into your work. Yeah. I, once a month, I would go out with my cousins just to like, um, you know, just go have fun and go clubbing, whatever, you know, you go to, what's it called? Commissary, you know, or Mesa. Um, But I think for me, my socializing was at art school because I had finally found my people, group of people. I was like, wow, you get me, I get you. So every Sunday we have class and like, we hang out at lunch. That was my socializing. And then I go back home. And every week I was like, I'm working hard towards that Sunday to meet my friends. So that was where I got to socialize with people. And I remember that first day of class, I made a choice. I was like, do I just be that hermit focus or do I just go get up and make a friend? And I'm so glad I did because so much of those friends are friends I still know now, you know? Yeah. Um, And that's important for, for, for the artist community to find your tribe because those 20 or 30 people that you connect with will eventually some will drop off, but most of them that you stay in touch with. And if they're in, in the game, that's how you uplift your career is these, um, these relationships that we have. Exactly. It's yeah. You know, when you get a job with a, a production team and you sit and you go over the director's vision and he describes what story he wants to tell and he's basically giving you the lowdown of of what he wants to see is it mostly him giving you shot by shot literal sort of like this is what i want and then you go and execute it or is it the reverse where he describes it and then you uh take it upon yourself to say hey i'm gonna produce what i think you're telling me so i need you to see this and then you kind of embellish what's the process it's case by case every director is different so that's another thing too is like how do you when you're first working with directors like dating you're kind of like taking it slow feeling each other out what's your move here's my move and you're kind of back and forth and then you start building that shorthand with each other Mm. Um, one of my directors he treats like he runs it like a ceo he's like i hired you here's my intention here's like what i have in my mind go figure it out you know I worked with another director who also is a, a, a different type of CEO where she was like, had everything like mapped out. Like basically gave me like an Ikea instructions. I'm like, here's what I need. And I was able to build the animatic off what she had in her head because she know what coverage that she needed. Um, or another people can be in between that, you know, where it's like, I kind of have an idea, but let's kind of feel it out together, you know, get your thoughts on it. So it's just a case by case scenario where I was like, any animation I've had directors where they're just like, hey, Andy, here's a song. Go have at it. I trust you completely. You know, um, so it but, just depends. But, but what's harder to do? That guy, the the the, the latter, where he's like, just here's a here's a, a song, go do it. Or do you like having more instructions? Both, because in animation, it's more have at it. I it's more problem solving for me. But then when I work with directors that tell me what to do or what they want in live action, it's it's less the problem solving load is, is taken off me because mm-hmm. they have that vision. So I can focus more on the execution. So it's just a, for me, the reason why I like that, I talk is I get to learn. I get to learn from like these like amazing top tier, like A-listic directors. Whereas like, if it's an animation, it's like most of them trying to figure out on my own for the most part. So. The power so, of, 
the power of sort of having a window into what is going to be seen from the audience's eyes is such a big deal to me. When I think about what you have to kind of like sit and squeeze out of your brain and, and map out and, and do problem solving. How do you approach that? How do, what's your sort of like your process to kind of like figure out what we should be seeing as the audience? That's an interesting question. Cause there's so much of it is taste. Yeah. That, and that, that's what I want to get to. Yeah. Because having developed this sense of style and taste of showing me what I need to be seeing, it can go anywhere. It can go yeah. in a, a million directions, right? It's not like a singer where you have notes on the page and you can veer off a little bit and then do some trills and, you know, you know, you could, you could, you could funk out. Right. But I think with storytelling on a visual medium, there are ways that you as the director's eyes is showing me why this is like, how is your process like, this is important. You should see it. And then you should see it from this angle. Right. Yeah, I, I basically will close my eyes and visualize it over and over again. And I'll do quick thumbnails just to kind of like document everything. And then I'll just start iterating over and over again. Mm. And then I'll start roughing it out. But it's like a, it's like an impression in my head. And, but the thing that I didn't realize I was good at was editing in my head. Because in live action, you get all the coverage first, and then you edit after, right? You cut the footage. In animation, we can't shoot coverage, so we have to edit in our head. So that skill set has made me, has helped me in live action, where like if the directors give me the coverage, I don't have to edit. I'll do a first pass of the editing myself, and then they can, if they like it, great. They they basically got a first pass of seeing what the movie is like. If not, they can they have a reference point to make notes now and adjust. Yeah, it makes sense. Makes so much sense. What do you think are some of the most important skills or assets of being a good storyboard artist? Communication. Yeah. Because you're working with different people and like, it's all about clarity. Clarity is power. You know, it's like, it's a great storytelling, but it's also a philosophical thing. You know, clear, if you have clarity of what you want in life, that's powerful. You know, clarity of your thought, clarity of your soul, clarity of your heart, that's powerful. So for me, it's like, that's a big thing. Problem solving is another thing too. It's all problem solving. So, you know, we'll figure it out, you know, like whatever that problem is. In order to get to clarity, I feel like you have to have a large body of information references that you, clarity and taste are, they kind of go hand in hand, right? Like if you don't have this sort of uh, body of knowledge of films and comic books and you can't really get to clarity because how would you get to clarity and know what you want specifically if you don't do the the reps of, of watching films, of consuming? Yeah. How much of that are you doing? A lot. So usually before each scene, I'll do a lot of studying research. I'll have it. Here's a great quote my friend told me. I was like, do you get writer's block? And he was like, no, I don't. I was like, well, how so? He's like, I trust my gut. And then when I'm stuck, I go back to my foundations and troubleshoot. And that it's just click. It's that we have a gut instinct. Lean into that, right? And I always tell my students, like you're writing an essay, vomit, get everything out, yeah. get it out, and then we'll edit. You know, just trust your gut, get it out. They may not be exactly what you want, but we'll maneuver, we'll move, and we'll figure it out. But that inkling that you have in your gut, there's something there. Lean into that. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So I think for me, it's like that, that's a seed of clarity. And it's like, how do we kind of sift through the vomit and then kind yeah. of pull what we need? And, and that's one of the, the, the biggest tenets of, of growing as an artist, which is you got to throw your reference reference points out there, you know, in the vomit drafts, and then you have something to work from. And the, the, the skilled and the experienced artists are the ones that understand that process and don't judge what's being thrown out there. The reference points yeah. that they're just throwing out there and they're just, building iterations they're just iterating over the reference points that are coming out yeah. one of my friends is like iterations the skill set you know yeah. and it's like it's so true because so many people even me as artists you're so afraid to, to iterate yeah because it's so vulnerable you know so you're you're intimidated by that blank page but after i think working in and working in the industry and seeing how other people do i'm like yeah iterate half of what we do is try just try and iterate try and iterate again you know yeah, it's a process. It, it, it sounds like that is in every artist's um, repertoire is the good ones have to be very comfortable with this mm-hmm. idea of constantly iterating and having the patience, real patience to 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 go through that process because it's a bitch. It's a it's a really tough thing to kind of master that muscle of iterating constantly, yeah. constantly, constantly iterating. But I think from engineering, I learned that too. Mm. You know, that's what we do in engineering. We iterate, we version up, you know, every, I, what I learned was that every chip that is created, is not perfect. Yeah. It's just good enough to hit the standards to be released. And next year they version up again. You know, that's it. Yeah. How competitive is storyboarding? I think it's very competitive, especially now. Recently there has been a big uh, bubble burst with streaming. There was lots of content before with all the streaming networks at like HBO and Netflix Hulu, Disney, and then, you know, recently you've seen there's a downsize, you know. So a lot of my friends are are looking for work right now. And my f- old boss is telling me it's cyclical. He's like, I've been through three of these cycles. You know, when you make your money, save it. Don't think that's the new norm. It's not. It will fall. Oh, that's so, good advice. Yeah. So you don't have so, to shake your boots. But then would it if if it ever got so thin, would you go back to engineering? No. I think I built up something for myself that I can sustain. Yeah. What makes you think that you have built up enough to sustain? What gives you the confidence to say, I think I've got, I think I've arrived to where I don't have to turn back into engineering. There's different levels. Like for any animation, there's a storyboard and a storyboard revisionist. If I can't get that, I can do that. I'll make money doing that. Uh, my draftsmanship is strong. If I can't do this, I'll teach. I have a good reputation and built up my good, it's good teaching brand. You yeah. Know, so I, I built up different cash Absolutely. revenues. Yeah. Yeah. Smart. Where, where'd you learn that? Where'd you kind of pick that? Uh, that working as an engineer, <laughs> working in corporate, uh, but also one of my friends, um, he's a, he's very business savvy. So um, during engineering, if I, I'm always trying to learn. So if I'm not drawing at work, what I do is I listen to audiobooks listen to podcasts on business, 
you know, self-improvement um, on other artists' interviews, studying other artists and how they break into the industry. So I'm always trying to, even though I'm not drawing those eight hours of work, there's something else I'm doing on the side to learn. You know, I want to go back to coverage, this idea of, of coverage. Do How do you know what to cover? And coverage for, for our audience listening is this idea of like different camera angles, right? Um, how do you know what to coverage? Because you could really think about coveraging. When you think about coverage, you could go in, again, infinite directions yeah. to cover what the audience should be seeing. But how do you efficiently do this in an economical way to present back to the team? Yeah, it's it goes back to clear knowing what you're trying to say. Yeah. And then point of view of the story. Whose point of view? So you can, you know, with sitcoms, it's just like camera, camera here, you shoot, you cut back and forth. That's great for clarity of story, but it loses subjectivity. So you won't feel as much with those shots, right? What makes it, what makes you feel something when you watch something of, of a feature of cinema is that subjective camera, because you're putting the audience in the shoes of that character, right? So it's, for me, it's like, what is the character feeling? What's that journey they are going through that scene, you know, or do we pivot to another character? You know, that's one thing. And it's like, but every scene in a movie has to serve a, a purpose in the story. Yeah. What is that purpose? Okay, again, problem solving like engineering, go back macro. What is the point that we're trying to make here? Okay. So usually for me, I will write out everything like, and it has to be causality. Like if this happens, therefore this happens, but then, or, but then this happens, right? But it's like a chain reaction. You're basically, what you're doing with storytelling is that you're juxtaposing things to create meaning, right? So you're juxtaposing a shot with another shot that will create a meaning, right? But then now you're adding music, yeah. audio, all that is constant juxtaposition. Now you're juxtaposing it frame by frame. And each of those juxtapositions is based off where the focal point is. So that one singular focal point is like, that's where the audience is looking at. That's where the story is. So then the next frame or the next shot, they're looking here now. What is that? When you juxtapose that focal point with that focal point, what does the audience infer in between? This is film one one. This is what you know, what you learn in film school is putting these images next to each other to create meaning. Mm -hmm. And you do it through visuals of the actors, visual of the environment, the landscape, certain yeah. objects, put music on it, dialogue on it. And here Sound we go. Sound design, everything, color grading, all that stuff makes a difference. It all works together. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's just such a, a beautiful, it's such a beautiful thing for me to, to be able to kind of like really get into storyboarding and understanding it, you know? So I really, I really appreciate the, you breaking it down. Oh, of course. Yeah. I always love sharing this stuff. What, what do you say to people who are stuck in their cubicles, you know, and they're unhappy and they know that they got this like skill set that they can get into, but they're just not ready or afraid to, to take that step. To be honest, that's their journey to take. Because like, I've had friends that try to do career changes. I can't convince them. They have to hit a breaking point. Mm. What was your breaking point? I mean, my cousin hates me when I say this, but I think I probably would have, something bad would have happened if I kept on doing engineering. I'll mm. say, I leave about that. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't happy. So mental health was, you know. I was, I was getting panic attacks at work. Damn. I would start. I would start hyperventilating, and I and then the moment I left, all of it disappeared. You know, it's crazy, man. Can you imagine all the people who are going through health issues, cancer, whatever the fuck 
is going haywire in their body, a lot of it has to do with these mental conditions. Yeah. I mean, you just I mean, described for, it. For me, like, I, when I went to art school, I was so happy for those like few hours of a week. And I told myself, if I don't break in and I happen to get hit by a car next day, I'm happy. Fine. If I break in, it's just a cherry on top now. Damn. Because I've found my personal truth, you know, and I'm living it. And I think that's what everyone's to strive for. It's hard, but like, it's so worth it. And that's why, like, if there's an opportunity for me to help with teaching, if I can help someone get on that personal truth and help empower them to do that, then I'll do it. Because I know how happy it was for me just to be in that classroom, you know. And that is just the tip of the iceberg, iceberg. you know, of what things can become up for you, right? And since then, it's been it's been an adventure. But from that moment of of having these uh, sort of nervous or anxiety, you know, in in your cubicle, how long did it take from the departure, departing the work of an engineer, to actually? making a sustainable living how long was that period it took me three years to break in okay so with within those three years how much doubt did you have about the journey like fuck i you know i'm happy but i'm not quite believing that the finance will come a lot and i always tell people if you need to get off that horse get off it take a break but when you're ready jump back on it's okay take a break this whole idea of like, you have to keep on going. It's fine. So our, our terms were 10 weeks and I would sacrifice a lot of my time and health and, and time away from family. But when we had the, the term off, I would draw, I would read books. I would go to gym, spend time with my family, basically rebuilding my body mental health again before I jump back into that double duty of school and engineering. And I think the other thing that a lot of people have a hard time is that they don't accept that it'll take a long time. So there's like that 10,000 hour rule, but I think Malcolm Gladwell, for me, I saw it as this. If uh, if it takes us four years to be competent at an entry-level job, that's how long it's going to take me. So I gave myself four years and I treat it like a four-year college where like, what do you do the first two years of college? You learn the fundamentals, right? That was like the re repetition of those classes. Third year is upper division. I started taking storyboarding classes and building a portfolio. And hopefully, and I got lucky by the end of that third year, I made my break. But I remember my mentor was telling me like, if you're going to do this on average from someone from the ground up, it takes four to five years on average. If you're lucky, three years. And I remember when I got um, that job offer, I was like, that's what I meant sure I made it. You know, just about the end of that third year. You know, and this is starting to be talked about more. This idea of three years of just being in the trenches, of not seeing like the light of day and not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel it takes three years to kind of just get your feet wet and to kind of just be proficient, not good, but just be proficient. And, you know, whether you're singing or you're cooking, becoming a chef, those first three years are, are, are instrumental in laying the foundation, the groundwork, but that's not even the beginning of it. Right. Oh. That's not even the beginning because then you got to jump into like year four, year five, and then probably you're seeing a little bit of money. year six. I, so I did art school for three years and I've been doing this industry for eight years now. So yeah, I've hit my like 10, 11 years now, but my friends like, don't count the art, don't count the art school. That's you have only like, imagine when you'll be 10 years in the industry, you'll be a different person as an artist, you know, 
And I, I remember my mentor is telling me, he was like, it didn't click until the seventh year or the fourth or fifth year, you know, wow. that's when things started clicking. And I was like, yeah, I think he said fourth or five, fourth or fifth year in the industry. And I was like, yeah, that's about right for me. Things started clicking around like the sixth, fifth or sixth year. I've been, this is my third year. This started my third year podcasting and um, I completely see it. You know, I, I, I can, can see from the day one, the first 10 episodes to today, and I can actually see how much more I need to improve. I, I see that the question styles, the prep styles, the research, how it all sort of gathers this sort of energy as the years go on. And the hard part is really reminding yourself that you are going to be a bit of a different person in five years. Because it's yeah, hard I, yeah. in real time. I So that's... I've been very lucky to constantly make a switch. So I did the same thing from like, so after boarding, I wanted to learn screenwriting. I did the same thing. I got into animation, got got my, was the only position where I can be comfortable with learning other stuff. So what would I do? Repeat, I got two, three hours overnight. What do you do? Let's go take improv. Took improv for a year and a half. And I started taking screenwriting classes from there a year and a half. And I was like, I think by the time I'm a fourth year, I'll be proficient. And at work, I was getting scripts to write as well to practice that. So 2020 is when I was summer of 2020 when I left Netflix. That's when I finished writing my pilot. And I you know that's that year was a bit on and off, but I had finished my first draft of my pilot. And that's the following year after that's when I started boarding it. So and then now it's like I'm in a position where like I've written and directed now. Because my goal is to get into directing. Mm. So again, how do I create these opportunities for myself to learn and grow and continue to innovate and grow as an artist, right? Um, and it's funny because I never had the idea of being a director until working in live action where my director was like, oh, I can totally see being a director. And that seed that he planted in my head, I was like, if this guy sees it in me, fuck, okay, I can see it now too. Yeah. And that just, that was a big lesson of having people that see potential that you don't even see for yourself, you know, for you to recognize it. Um, and I think if it wasn't for that director, I wouldn't be pursuing this. Yeah, man. It, it's crazy. I come here for the storyboard, right? I come here for the profession of the person. I come here to do the interviews always. Like I anchor my interview on, you know, your storyboarding, right? Your, your, your work in that, but it always branches out into just such a, a more deeper analysis of the tangentials that make up the greatness of the work that you do. I, you know, I, I'm not giving you accolades that I don't know about, right? I just, I'm just saying that I know that in order to make it to the storyboard level that, cause you know, you were introduced by people I trust very much and they're like, that's the real deal. He's the real deal. Now I can hear how high level in terms of like the, the, the process of storyboarding you are, but there's other things that kind of come together to produce this sort of high level, it's not just a drawing or it's not just putting the images together, but it's this, the screenwriting training. It's the you know improv training at UCB. All these things put in together in three years, you're a completely different person. You're probably directing studio level films in 10 years, right? It's just that progression happens as a result of focusing tightly on the main thing, but then having these tangential skill sets that eventually lead you to another place that you really wanted to be in. Mm -hmm. So like you said, there's the screenwriting, there's the improv, 
and then um, the live action board and teaches me more about boarding and directing. And I recently shot a short film, um, a short, short scene, short scene with the friends. And I realized that I've never had to direct actors on set. And then that was when I was like, oh, that's the next thing to learn. After mm -hmm. my pilot's done, I'm going to start taking acting classes and how to direct actors classes. Because they were like, you know how to like, you know how to direct the shot. But it's the actors. You need to learn that language now. How to speak with actors, you know. And so I was like, okay, now I know what's the next step to keep on growing. Where, where do you where do you go to learn that? There's different classes, like in LA, so or New York. So I have friends that recommend me a bunch of stuff and books to read. So I'm excited to learn that after I finish my pilot. Yeah, tell me about your project Tao. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, growing up, I love superheroes. I grew up on like Batman the animated series, like and comics and anime. Um, so and then I have a huge love for my family. So just a love letter to that. And I just wanted to tell more of a Vietnamese American story, you know, um, from the lens of like, yeah, like what is what does that mean to have like this Vietnamese American kid with superpowers, you know? Growing up, I didn't have, I never seen that before. So I was like, well, let's create it, you know, let's tell the story that I want to tell. So that's kind of where like that came from. And also like at work, um, oh my God, I hope I don't get in trouble for this but um there were stories written and there were asian stories written and directed by white people and it didn't feel authentic and genuine to me it was more through the the gaze of that view of that yeah. perspective and so i was like well i'm pretty smart somewhat i did engineering let's kind of figure this out so that's what she started the the idea to start learning how to do screenwriting is because of that kind of uh, moment at work. Got it. And how far along are you with the project, with Project Tao? We finished Act 1. Act 2 and 3, I just finished writing. So now I'm starting to board that. Um, I had injured my shoulder, so I had to take a break for like a few months. Uh, I think now it's like in good shape to get back into it again. Uh, the goal was to kind of get that out and you know put out there to the universe. You know, I, For me, I just want to tell stories. And it's my... My partner, my writing and business partner hates this. And I say this, I was like, let's just put it out. Like, I don't really give a fuck if we don't sell this or not. Like, yeah, it'd be great. But for me, I just want to tell this story. It's an exercise of my voice as a writer and director. That to me is like the long game. I'm always playing the long game. Yep. If I keep on building this muscle, something will come. Some door yep. will open in the future. Yep. I don't know what door it is, but if this isn't so, I'll make another one. I'll keep on doing it. I'll keep on growing and learning. That's key. That's a key is that constant evolving change of pace and understanding like you got to just keep doing the work. And if the work feels right, doors open up. Yeah. I remember, uh, I won't say what studio, but uh, a studio did reach out to to be like, hey, we watched it. It was great. Keep up the great work. And I told my um, my director about it. And he messaged me. He's like, this is how I built my career. I make good work and I put it out there and good things come. You create your own, you create your own opportunities, Andrew, you know, so he was like, just keep on going. Um, so that for me, was like when that studio reached out, it was a, it was a, it was a very a small victory that I really celebrated because it was a sign that we're on the right track. Yeah. I, I did an interview with the director, Din Tai. He uh, Din's great. I love Din. Great. Din, Din's such a great guy. 
And he told me about his journey and he's a little bit older, you know, he's not in his thirties and, you know, late forties now, and he had success with uh, Monday and his, it's so inspiring to hear where if you just continue down the path of the work that you're supposed to do, eventually you will have an opportunity to, to, to break in. And it just takes a little bit of patience and time. And perhaps the reason you haven't reached it is you don't have the skill set that you need to 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 knock out the and execute the, the work. I think the other thing too is what I've really learned from working with Din, especially and other directors, is that kindness and care. Yeah. For another human being, that respect that will go so, so far. I've been very fortunate. I work with directors and that have what I really learned was how do you how do you just treat people with kindness? Mm-hmm. You take it, you take what's we take it for granted, but it goes so far. And I think that's been my biggest lesson of like I remember like I applied for something and I didn't get it. And my director immediately called me up right away and we like shared his experience and story. He's like, don't ever let this like, um, get you, get you. And I was like, I'm so glad that I didn't, I'm actually happy. I didn't get it Yeah, because, because I didn't get, I got this call from you. And this is, this is this. He was telling me, he's like, you didn't get it, but you learn how to direct. You're with us. We're making a movie You're on set. This is where you learn how to direct, you know? And, but for me, it's just like that action of calling me to like, to comfort me, that meant a whole world to me. And I was like, this is, this is, this is how you should be. This, this kindness will go so far. In Hollywood, there's a lot of tribes and the tribes take care of each other. They really do. <laughs> and if you're not on the receiving end of the good stuff from the tribe, then you're on the receiving end of like a coldness, you're locked out. It's just part of it. And I think that for all the young people that are coming up, it's like, find the tribe feel the warmth, feel the support, feel the love. And when you're getting no set to you constantly, just accept that because it's just not the right time. Um, but yeah. your tribe will habilit- rehabilitate you over and over and over until you get to the point where you break in. Yeah. I mean, I also think like, this is something I learned recently is that also like where you're at in life is, will be a reflection of the people around you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And like, for example, like my third act of my pilot I could not crack it for the longest time. And my, my writing partner was like, I recently, I cracked it last year. And she's like, the only reason why you cracked is because you finally healed mm. as a person. Because you healed, you saw the answer to how to conclude this story. Because this story is so much of who you are as a person. Yeah. And that's the way it goes, right? You know, talk to other authors. Um, you know, I'm like, hey, you know, 80% of the book was, you know, one time I had this one author on and it's like 80% of the book were things that were happening, but like the magic and the really the oomph, the punch was like the last 20% of the book. Did you have that all planned? She goes, no, I wrote it for six years, seven years. And it wasn't until like the last year or six months that I stumbled on it as a life experience. And then I incorporated that life experience and it all just came together. That's like how how can we plan for those type of serendipitous moments? And I think that's why authors and, 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 and artists have to be so strong in their, in their perseverance to stay with the vision and to go no matter how long it takes to get the right ending, quote unquote, right? It just takes time. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you can't afford it given the deadline of work, you know, you make do with it, but with this, like I have the time in my hand to a certain extent. Yeah. So it's been great. Um, it's funny. Something did happen where it led to events and choices I made, which then I was like, oh, this is how you solve Act 3. And it was 
decision I would have made in the past, you know, but I made it now. And I think that's what led to that answer, which is a sign of my growth as a human being. And, and is Tao a feature? I should know this. Um, it's a half hour pilot. If we sell it, you know, it can be, either way, it can be a feature, it can be a limited series. Yeah. Yeah. I could see it both ways too. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been to yeah, Vietnam? No, I have not. I wanted to go last year, but um, just something came up with the work stuff. But I think I've been seeing a lot of my friends go there recently. It's just such a magical place. It really and is. I, and it, it really is a magical place. You described it perfectly. I can't wait to like take my socks and sandals and just dip my feet onto the earth of that soil. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that moment. So hopefully this year this will work out. What do you think you'll be experiencing once you get to Vietnam? What do you imagine? I think a connection to everything that came before me. From my parents, to grandparents, generations before that. And then also seeing the evolution of that country and where it's come to be. I'm sure it's very different than like what my parents have, have, been, have seen it from when they left the country. A really cool answer you just gave. The people that came before you. I think that I read somewhere, and I'm, I hope I'm not way too off here, but in in order to create one of us, right? You go back 12 generations. Do you know how many people was involved in that upside down pyramid? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. It's like 4,000 people or something like that. Because it gets, you know, exponential, right? As you go further out of the upside down pyramid. And to think about those 4,000, let's even say it's 1,000 people. I don't, I don't know what the math is, but it's a, a crazy number. Those people existed on a genetic level before we got to the United States outside of the country. But these 4,000 people were in that country. Yeah. And we are like living on the, the shoulders of this like 4,000 people 12 generations ago. And here we are in a completely different landscape. Yeah. I mean, like, I think as a kid, I didn't, I mean, obviously as a kid, I took my parents for granted what they did, but like now coming into my time as an adult, I'm so proud of my parents yeah. and my aunts and uncles for what they've done to create the life for themselves and for us, that foundation. It's, I'm like, the adulting is hard, man. Like, like <laughs> fucking hard. And then I'm like, yeah, you guys fucking killed it. <laughs> yeah, man. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see what the next few years. Oh, brings, yeah. You know, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You have you're you going to do do you have any other questions we can like just shoot? The, no, no, let's. Me. I want to see. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to see you draw some stuff. Well, you can ask me something. We can kind of. Can you see it now? Yeah, I can see it. What's this? You're the bunny now? Yeah. Okay, with this. Are you drawing um, a mouse? No, I'm drawing with a pen. Pen. Oh, okay. But what about you? Do you like to draw too? Oh my God, it's such an ugly bunny. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have never been good at it because my brother was good at it. He's an animator. And. Yeah. Um, he came up doodling his entire life and, you know, he was always good at it. And I always felt like I was good with, I was much better uh, with words than with, with, uh, with art. I have no idea what the fucking bunny looks like. <laughs> I should have done some research before. Uh, of course, your brother works his own visual effects company. Yeah. He has like 200 people in Vietnam. Hey, but, but, but you know what though, man, you can't be drawing a bunny. You got to be drawing a cat. Because oh, you're right. Bunnies yeah. are for, the, for Chinese. Yeah, I'm getting my own. That's my yeah. that's my zodiac year. Oh, so you're 36. Uh, yeah, 36 this year. 
Oh, wow. And I'm, it's supposed to be a bad luck year. So we'll find out. Well, <laughs> you and me both, because I'm 48. Well, I, this, oh, really? My year, I turned 48. Oh, that's... Damn. Well, I guess we'll uh, cry together about this year. We'll see what happens. <laughs> but it's, it's turned out to be a good year. So, Well, no, no, we haven't gotten into... We haven't, we haven't hit it yet. We haven't hit, we haven't it, hit yet. it yet. We haven't hit it yet. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Are you ready plans for that? I'm going to Sundance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Being Sundance with uh, Bao and Anderson and Ham and all my party. Um, That's very cool. If if people can't see that right now, um, Andy's drawing a cat, uh, a cartoon of a cat. Um, you can catch it on the YouTube video. Um, and I, you know, we'll try to post it somewhere, huh? Oh my, that's such a shitty cat. I haven't drawn in a bit, uh, but usually, like, I'm more like used to drawing like. I don't draw the Powerpuff Girls with it to celebrate the new year. And so, like I've drawn these girls like so much that they're like muscle memory for me now. The Powerpuff? Yeah. This is a cool process. But it's fun like drawing these characters because like every I've worked on other shows and no one like knows what they are, but this show is like so iconic. Yeah. Yeah. So when I draw these, I always like leave little drawings when I go to restaurants with people. <laughs> of, like Powerpuff Girls and like like, yeah, I watch this show. It's a nice way to kind of like make their day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then let's do this over here. This is a very cool thing. What are your, uh, do you have any lunar new year resolutions? Um, That's a great question. I don't believe in new year's resolutions starting at the new year's. I start my calendar at the beginning of October. Ah. Yeah, because it gives, that? It gives me a, a runway, October, November, December. It gives me a three-month runway to adjust, right? So I will carry out my vision and my plans from October all the way to this December. So I'm still going through the things, you know, when I hit October, I'm still executing what I planned back in the last October, but it gives me three more months, right? So I don't have a 12 month, I have a 15 month, but I reassess in October. Oh. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So you you can overlap the year at the end and then start making your adjustments within that three months. So you have 15 months instead of 12 months. Oh. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone, everyone has their life hacks. <laughs> Yeah, man, it's just, uh, there's not enough in 12 months. If you, if you set these parameters down, it's not, and I don't have really like deep parameters. I'm just like, okay, can I get another, you know, 150 episodes out this year? Um, can I, you know, I started working on a memoir a few months oh, wow. ago. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's how, you know, when we we're in New York, I was writing a lot, Yeah. The, the, the memoir. And so if I can finish the memoir this year, or just a rough a real rough draft of it, then I'll I'll be happy. Let's do the size over here. Look at that. Ta -da. Can you see that? Yeah, very cool, man. A little, a little something for you, sir. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. That's a, a really cool gift. Right. Cool. I'll give you an original one next time. I'll draw for you in person. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Well, again, thank you for, so much for coming on today. It's uh, been uh, very uh, enlightening to, to know the, the work that you do and sort of track it, you know, the beauty of this is like we track 
where you are today. And in a few years, it was like, Hey, Ken, uh, I want to come on the podcast. I have a movie coming out. You know, that's the ultimate to be able to see tape from two years ago, three years ago. Now you have a feature coming out and, you know, it's very warm feeling for me to see that progression. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Well, hopefully those will be my cards in the future. We'll find yep. out though. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Man. All right. Have a great year and then we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks so much, Ken. I'll see you next right. time. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast.